Well, good morning, saints. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn or scroll to 1 John. Many thanks to Jeff and to Mike who led us in the Word the last couple Sundays. Uh, We're going to return now to 1 John. We've only, well, you can tell, we're kind of getting to the tail end of the letter. So we got a few more weeks uh, before we land the plane on this particular study. So this morning in our remaining time, I want to whet our appetite for what must be, in my humble opinion, one of the most precious and powerful and distinctly Christian doctrines. That is the assurance of our salvation. The assurance of our salvation. It is one thing to say that you are saved. It is another thing to know. To know that you know that you are saved. That you have been adopted into God's family. That your eternity is spoken for. And this this topic deserves and will get its own sermon. Because I would like to pull together... Not just in First John, but um, all throughout the New Testament, the rich teaching on the assurance of our salvation. John, as we have said before, is advanced in years. He is living in exile for his Christian witness. His Christian witness was not well received. And so, whereas many or most of his colleagues... The apostles had lost their life. They were martyred for the sake of the gospel. John had a different route. He was sent to exile. So he is writing with a pastor's heart for the people who, those believers who were under his care, speaking to giving a strong spiritual nourishment for the challenges that face them and for the challenges that face each and every Christ follower Every generation, bar none, since the inception of the church of Christ. So, 1 John chapter 5, and I have some slides here, but I'm actually going to back it up to verse 11. We're going to read through verse 15. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God that you might know That you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know that he hears us in whatever we ask. We know that that we have the requests that we have asked of him. John is bringing his letter to a conclusion. And his counsel, his teaching 
seems to get richer and richer and more direct as he go as he goes as we've said john kind of speaks to the very similar topics as he goes through his letter it's almost cyclical he'll say something and then you get to the next chapter and you're like didn't he just say that actually yes he did but he's telling you in a different way because he wants you to get it so there are lots of very very strong themes as john goes one of the basic themes in john's letter obviously is the astounding proposition that sinners that sinners are forgiven it is an astounding gospel proposition that sinners are forgiven as if we had never sinned in the first place most of us when we think clearly and are honest with ourselves don't have to be told that we're sinners that we make mistakes that we sin that we fall short of god's perfection for most of us that's a rather regular occurrence But the astounding truth of the gospel is that sinners are forgiven completely as if we had never sinned in the first place. Another gospel term is reconciled. We are reconciled to God who is immeasurably holy and righteous and just. God can't even be tempted to sin. Well, I mean, we do it so naturally and so easily. God can't even be tempted to sin. John is speaking to this beautiful core element of the gospel. It is a uniquely Christian concept that is rooted in the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Complete forgiveness. And it doesn't cost you anything. I mean, it's our own tendency to live our life trying to make up for the things, to atone for all the things we know we've messed up. The gospel is completely countercultural in that regard. It's a gift. Someone else did the hard work for us. And John makes that abundantly clear as well. Remember what he said a few weeks back. He said, Christ came by water and the blood. And you're like, well, that's a unique way of saying something. He said he came by water and by blood. Not by water only but by water and the blood. Christ's ministry was inaugurated in his baptism. Remember John the Baptist was like, um, actually this should be switched around. You should be baptizing me. Why am I baptizing you, the son of God? But what did Jesus say? This is to fulfill all righteousness. Because Jesus would indeed, by his active obedience, fulfill righteousness. He would do for us that which we could never do for ourselves. He would actively 
and without fail keep the holy law of God. He would live righteously before God. He would live the life that you and I literally can only dream of if you're even inclined to it. He did everything perfectly. He was more than without fault. He was perfect. He lived that life of perfection. But John says that's beautiful. But he didn't just do that. Because that would be more than anything just a moral teaching. That would be an example for us. And John says you can't stop there. He came by blood as well. The Son of God suffered and gave his life for us. He literally was a bloody mess on a cruel Roman cross. He died for our sins. Having lived that perfect life and, and, and honored and obeyed God in every way, he laid down his life for sinners. Without Jesus' death on the cross, there is no atonement for sins. There's no propitiation. That remarkable word that we're introduced to at the beginning of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, propitiation. I mean, the entirety of the Old Testament that talks about the blood sacrifices that were made and the high priests and the priests and once a year and every day and on special occasions, all these sacrifices that were made, if we're honest with ourselves, the Hebrew Scriptures is a very messy, messy story. Oh, but there was one who would come. Remember John the Baptist when he saw Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Oh, we've heard about the Lamb. We've heard about the Lamb of God. We remember, we remember on the Passover when we would, each one of us, our own home, every single home, would have a lamb that was sacrificed and which lost its life. A male, young lamb without fault, without any defect would lose its life, its blood would be caught, and it would be applied to the doorposts of every single home. So on that beautiful day, when the Lord delivered them from the bondage, the slavery of the Egyptians, they walked out of their home never to return again free, covered by the blood of the Lamb. And for centuries upon centuries, They would annually remember the sacrifice of that lamb being covered by the lamb of God, gifted to them, showing them God's deliverance, his redemption, being redeemed from slavery, being redeemed from bondage, being brought to the promised land. And so you had better believe that every Jew within earshot, they understood exactly what John the Baptist was saying when he said, that is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There is no priest in the Old Testament that 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 could ever be said of. 
They didn't take away sins. And they certainly didn't do it for the world. They were pointing to somebody to come. And then there's the day of atonement, Yom Kippur. Every single year when everybody would gather. And the priest would rise up early. Why did he rise up early? Because he had to cover his own sins. Because he's a sinner. And he's about to stand before God on behalf of all the people. He had to cover his own sins. He had to make his own blood sacrifices before he could stand and do the same thing for the people. And there was a goat that would lose its life. And then there was one that would be led out into the wilderness to signify after having the sins of the people confessed upon that goat. That just as God had removed that goat from the presence of the people, God was removing their sins from them. All of these things found their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. John speaks clearly now to an aspect of salvation that we frankly don't speak to often enough, and that is regeneration, being born again. The breathtaking reality that as we are born again, the life of God resides now in the life and in the hearts of people. That's the gospel. God now dwells with people. He shows us and he demonstrates to us what that new life looks like. Remember the number of times as we've read through the letter where he says, born of God, born of God, born of God, born of God. Because he's saying, you're a Christian. Becoming a Christian is not just making an abstract decision at some point in your life or affiliating with people or associating with certain people or developing habits. Being a Christian is being born again. You're alive. And God is in you. We call the union, our union with Christ. Our conscience has been cleansed so that we can now serve God with gratitude and joy without somebody forcing us to do it. It's our natural inclination now. Oh, we fail, but that's what we want to do. John wants our joy to be full as we walk in fellowship with God. And he is saving, in my opinion, the best part for the last part of his letter when he speaks more clearly and more fully to assurance of salvation. So please note, I'm kind of keying in here on verse 13 in particular. John states that a purpose of his writing this letter is that we might know that we have eternal life. A few things I'd like to highlight. John's communication is extremely clear. He says that we might know that we have eternal life. He does not say that we wish or that we hope so or we think so, or we're pretty sure we're, we're good. He does not say that. He says that you might know that you have eternal life. This is the richness and the beauty of the gospel. That we might know. That we know that we know. That's assurance. 
You're not putting on a show for other people. You're not wearing a mask to make other people, whatever, think something about you. You know that you have eternal life. Note the tense that he uses. Communication matters. He says that you might know that you have, present tense, eternal life. You possess eternal life now. This is not something spoken of exclusively in the future. That one day you will die and one day you will stand before God and hopefully maybe you'll get in and at that point you have eternal life because eternal life, the Bible tells us, is more than a quantity of time. It's a quality of life. John 17, verse 3 or verse 5. This is eternal life that they may know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is to know Christ personally. And everything that he writes about in his letter is speaking to what that looks like in real time. When I've shared this before. When, I was, when we were in West Africa, uh, we keep our passport in a very safe place, along with some documents that we absolutely had to have whenever we got onto a plane going anywhere, especially back to the United States. That passport, for me, it's a passport, it's a United States passport. That passport is an official declaration to the authorities wherever I go that I am a citizen, in my case, of the United States. And accompanying that reality are certain rights and privileges that come as a citizen of the United States. I had an awful lot of plane flights while getting to the different places that I was going. And on most occasions, when you get off the plane, there's two lines. There's a you know, passport line, right? There's one for citizens and one for visitors. So I was usually in the visitor's line uh, because I'm not a citizen of Nigeria or of uh, Senegal or on the way home from of Portugal either. So I was in the other line. The reason why I share this is this. What does scripture say about our citizenship? Paul said, Philippians 3, we are citizens of heaven. The sooner and the better we get that squared away in our mind, the more joyful our Christian walk will be. I am grateful for my citizenship in the United States. But I know that my true abiding citizenship is in heaven. And that is why I love so much these trips. You might wonder, why does our pastor go on, like pre-COVID, go on these trips once or twice a year? Because it literally fills my cup. It fills my cup in a way that I don't know if I could get anywhere else. Vacations are nice. I mean, these trips are not easy. They're enjoyable, but they take effort. But the the benefit, the pleasure of being with people who are different than I am and seeing the same Lord at work in them, worshiping Christ, having these beautiful testimonies, it fills my cup. 
Because God is alive and he's at work the world over. And we get to play a small part in all of it. Your citizenship in heaven conveys rights and privileges to each one of us. One of them is the assurance of our salvation. As we grow in our confidence and are reassured of God's love and acceptance of us, we will inevitably become red hot in our service to him. It never goes the other way around. The more I grow in confidence and assurance, the more real all of this becomes. I mean, Paul told the Romans, the spirit testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. When I hear that clearly, when I believe it, and I I stake myself every single day, believing that God is well capable of fulfilling the promises that he made to me in Christ, my desire to serve him will exponentially grow. And you know what else? All the shiny things we see in life and the things that people run after, money, fame, whatever, all those things, as the old hymn says, they just grow strangely dim. Like, really, that's supposed to impress me? Do you know what I have ahead of me? Do you know that I am perfectly loved by the one who made me? And that in order to rescue me from the mess that I made, he sent his son who bled out for me? And you want me to live for these lesser things? No, no, thank you. Take them. They're all yours. Our capacity to to love others increases dramatically. Why? Because we're so familiar with the gospel that God loved us and forgave us all of our sins for Christ's sake. Who are you going to forgive that requires more than what God took to forgive you? Our joy grows. Our longing for heaven grows. And I love this, what he says as well. Verse uh, 15, I think. Our confidence in prayer grows as we grow in our assurance. So we will continue this great theme of assurance in the weeks to come as we bring this study to a conclusion. But I want you to maybe take time just to reflect on these few verses here that talk about the assurance of our salvation is beautiful. Would you uh, pray with me as we close out the sermon? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we, I am just so thankful. I am thankful for your faithfulness, for your kindness. Thank you for the simplicity and for the power of the gospel, the good news. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Believe in who he is, Lord and Savior. What he did for us, died on the cross for our sins, was buried and rose again. Put our confidence and our trust in him and in him alone for our salvation. Thank you that salvation is a free gift. Oh Lord, may we grow in the knowledge and in the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the door of opportunity uh, and witness and service that we have to participate more fully with the Sickle Cell Clinic Ministry in Nigeria. 
Thank you as well for the Bryants and for Grace who are serving the Lord with all of their hearts in Senegal. Thank you. Lord, we pray that if there is but one who has never put their faith and trust in Christ, that today would be the day of their salvation. And Lord, we pray that the testimony, if need be, of Mr. Oman would be our testimony. That hitherto, up to this place, we have not been red hot in our service for you, but we intend to rectify that. And with whatever time you have left that you've given us, that we would serve you fully and with a joyful heart. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.